This is episode number 461 with Dr. Sam Hinton, astrophysicist and expert in machine learning operations. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a chief data scientist and best-selling author on deep learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm your host, John Crone. And oh my goodness, are you in for a treat this episode because we're joined by the brilliant polymath, Samuel Hinton. Sam is a prominent astrophysicist, a software developer, and a former contestant on the television show Survivor, whom I'm sad to say was metaphorically stabbed in the back and voted off the island. But most importantly for this audience, Sam is a data scientist with a particular specialization in machine learning operations. More specifically, he works at a British firm called the Orenco Group, deploying fascinating machine learning models into production systems that enable renewable energy sources such as solar and wind to undercut the pricing of dirtier energy sources like coal and gas. The first half of today's episode should be of interest to anyone who likes to have their mind blown. In the first half, Sam provides elegant, digestible explanations of his astrophysics research, such as why our universe is expanding at an accelerating pace and how machine learning is used at a terabyte scale to try to understand this phenomenon. The second half of the episode caters more to hands-on data scientists and software engineers who are keen to learn about ML ops, machine learning operations, why we desperately need it if we're deploying machine learning models into production systems, and Sam's top tips for existing tools and techniques in the ML ops space. Before we dig into that, a quick announcement that starting in episode 465 in two weeks' time, we will begin releasing guest episodes on Tuesday mornings, New York time. Historically, we've released Wednesday evenings, but by releasing 36 hours earlier, we'll be giving you two more morning commutes in your week to enjoy the episode. I can't imagine any downsides to this change, but I didn't want to catch you off guard when it happens. Sam, welcome back to the program. It is such a joy to have you here. You were here for episode 303. You did p-hacking and stats. You were also here for episode 367, talking about COVID-19 data pipelines. I'm looking forward to some juicy updates on that. But in general, how's life? How have you been since that episode? Oh, I mean, I think I've been as good as everyone can be. We all know how 2020 and 2021's going, so uh, I'm still kicking. And for that, I think uh, that's as good as you should hope for. And uh, from that, yeah, I'm great, John. How are you? Nice. And you, well, I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Um, so in that time, you've had some big life changes. You moved from Australia to the UK. Have you ever lived in the UK before? How's it going? Tell us. I have visited the UK a bit. Uh, I've worked with people in Southampton, Portsmouth, Cambridge, and Oxford. So I've done the tour, but I've never actually lived in the UK. So that's definitely been new. I found out a few interesting things. For example, they have council tax here that you pay on top of your rent. That was a great surprise. But yeah, uh, since... <laughs> 
since I was last here, uprooted myself from blissful, COVID-free Australia, decided to travel right into the pit of doom, London, and see how that goes. And uh, yeah, exciting times. And so you're paying your television tax as well? What's a television? Is that... Oh, you mean the Netflix tax? <laughs> yeah, I'm paying a few of those. Yeah, they must be the internet must be really hemorrhaging Her Majesty's revenue from the television tax. Yes, yeah, for those of you who don't live in the UK, we're not making. I'm not making this up. There's a TV tax. It's not a huge amount of money. It's something like 150 or 200 pounds a year, or something like that. And you can opt out. But they can come and check and see if you have a TV, I guess. Uh, I don't know how often that happens. And yeah, in today's, in today's world where you don't really need a TV, you can just stream Netflix. You really don't need to pay the television tax. Is that money that just goes to the BBC for the, the public funded broadcasters? Because I can sort of get behind that. Like They do a lot of niche work that you know people Hollywood wouldn't do because there's no money in it. But... Yeah, it seems a bit weird. It's separate from, you know, every other source of tax and how the government works. But the UK is a very weird place, as I've found out. I think a good chunk of it does, in fact, go to the British, bar to the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC. And I think that they do do great work. They do a lot of thoughtful and investigative work. I think they can be trusted. And as someone who grew up in Canada with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, I also really appreciate their reporting. And I think a trustworthy public broadcaster could be hugely valuable in the United States where I live now. <laughs> oh, yes. Isn't that a deliciously large pile of worms there? <laughs> yes, you guys need maybe one or 10 of those in replacement for <laughs> the current broadcasters. I've heard Newsmax has really reliable reporting. So I'm going to check that out soon. Well, best of luck with that. I mean, if all else fails, I know these days you can just open up Facebook and they're great at fact-checking. You can just take yeah. whatever that creepy old uncle has shared and that's got to be true. Yeah, I mean, I've been on Facebook recently and I've seen, which I assume is the same news that everyone else sees, um, I've seen that everyone agrees with me on all of my, on all of my opinions. Yeah, so, I mean, me too. Um, it's, it's great. I have one uncle that yeah. he disagreed with me once. Uh, but, you know, I don't follow him anymore, so now everyone does. It's, it's a beautiful nice. thing, the internet. Yeah, and I know that my opinions are reliable and true. So if everyone else is saying the same thing, yeah, I think it's a closed case. We're all good. So anyway, we digress. <laughs> you don't want to we get should... too far down that rabbit hole, do you? Yeah, so last time you were here, we talked a lot about COVID-19 data pipelines. So... COVID-19 is still here. We are still going to be dealing with this for a long time. When you started working on that project, COVID was relatively new. Um, so you, the episode, the last episode was released in May. So you probably recorded it around April 2020. At that time, COVID was only a couple of months old. How did you get involved with that project and what were you doing? I mean, briefly, so that we're not recapping the entirety of last episode, but just yeah. so that we have some context for what's happened since. Sure. So this was when I was at the University of Queensland and UQ has a rather large medical research uh, side to it. Uh, I heard about uh, a senior researcher that was looking for various people to help out with a COVID-related case. I had a meeting with her. Uh, she was 
impressed by sort of my background outside of academia. One of the big issues they had is, you know, data, governance, pipelines, handling all of that, things that academics are generally not that well suited for. And so I gave her my background. I was put in as the technical lead for that project. And then over the course of the next several months, or indeed the course of the entire year, we were gathering data from several hundred hospital sites around the world. Uh, this was an observational study. So that means that uh, hospitals would sign up and we would sort of say, look, uh, when a patient with COVID comes in, can you record these details? And then every day from then on, can you record these details so that we can try and figure out, you know, what's correlated with what and you know, which patients that got which medication had certain outcomes so that we can hopefully at some point try and, you know, help the medical staff come to better decisions. Did it work? Was it helpful? Um, it, it's sort of a bit helpful. I think the, the long-term impact from the project isn't actually going to be about COVID-19 treatments at all. I'm hoping that the long-term benefit is setting up these sort of projects so that they can get off the ground quicker if this ever happens again. There was so much red tape you had to try and cut through and so much bureaucracy and even just issues with you know, how different hospitals and countries gather data and how that data is contained in those hospitals' internal systems. And now that we've sort of shown that this is a massive problem and it's almost impossible to extract the data you need from those systems, hopefully that adds a, a bit of a, you know, a fire under someone's butt so that those systems get upgraded or standardized or at least have different methods in place so that data can be requested from them. Because the fact that it took us six months to get to a thousand patients when there were, you know, hundreds upon thousands uh, of infections is crazy. But yeah, I was in about terms to of, ask, were, were there more than thousands of infections in Australia? Oh, no, no, Australia and well, I guess even more so. Yeah, so the good thing was because Australia wasn't so affected, we had more capacity to do the analyses. So initially at the start, we worked a lot with the Italian doctors because that's where most of our data was coming from. These days, most of it comes from America for right. obvious reasons. So whilst their clinical staff are sort of swamped just trying to keep things afloat, we can use the fact that we're not swamped to right. put our medical staff into the research and analysis. Right. Cool. I didn't anticipate that. Yeah, global collaboration. So, yeah, but you're not doing that anymore. So you've kind of, so we've talked about how you've moved away from Australia. Uh, there's been quite a few changes. So you were in Queensland, which is a state in Australia. You call them states, yeah. right? Yes, yes, yes. Good. Um, <laughs> you passed. The province bullet there. <laughs> and so you're in Queensland at the university of Brisbane, doing a PhD shortly before the COVID project. Uh, sorry, University of Queensland in Brisbane. Same, same, yeah. Um, and you've since been awarded that PhD. So in July of last year, you were awarded your PhD for your work at UQ. And you've moved on from the COVID work. How did you end up doing what, we, what you're doing now. So we're going to, to talk about that in a lot of detail. So you're now in England working at the Orenco Group doing ML Ops. What was the journey like? Oh, now that is a tortured journey. As often, you know, 2020, what else would you expect? So for a brief recap, I submitted my PhD, started working with the COVID-19 Critical Care Consortium, 
During that process, they awarded the PhD. I'd applied for various jobs within astrophysics because astro is fun. Um, I submitted a few things. I got and it's what your PhD offers. is in. Yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time learning this stuff. Might as well try and use it. Uh, so, yeah, I, I put out um, two, well, I responded to two fellowship positions, one in Chicago at the Kavli Institute, uh, the Cosmological, the Kavli Institute for Cosmological Physics, KICP Center. And I, I was offered that one. And I was also offered a position at Lawrence Berkeley Labs, the Chamberlain Fellowship, which would have been great. Uh, either of those yeah. are there, both fantastic opportunities. Uh, at um, Chicago, I would be able to continue working with the group in the Dark Energy Survey that I've worked with for years. At LBL, I'd be working with different groups, but there was a broader range of physics simply because it's a much larger research institution. And I'd also be working with Saul Perlmutter, who you may or may not know, 2011 Nobel Prize winner, but he has interests in physics. The name is familiar, yeah. yeah. So he, his interests are physics, data science, but also teaching. So critical thinking, epistemology, philosophy, something I'm also really interested in. So going to the States would seem like this would be absolutely fantastic. I got the offer and then COVID hit. So I got the offer at the end of February and uh, essentially to immigrate for a few years into the United States as a non-United States citizen is quite challenging. Right. So once COVID hit and mm. the city the city shut down and we couldn't travel, I couldn't get to the embassy to have my interview. Essentially, everything ground to a halt. I spent pretty much a year just trying to get down to Sydney, have my interview, get over to the states. Something went wrong each time. Every time Sydney would open back up, I would book flights and an interview, and then it would close back down and they would cancel everything. And then you go back into the waiting queue of months and months again which gets longer every time it closes down because oh, more and no. more people are waiting. So at the end of right. it, I was like, all right, yeah. this is obviously not working out for me. So let's look somewhere else. I have British ancestry. So I thought, well, let's look in Britain. And uh, it seemed to be working well. There were a couple of interesting data science positions. A lot of data science positions are not interesting to me. If, if I come across a job advert that is just some new startup company trying to do ad tech again or squeeze an extra 2% out of a conversion rate, <laughs> that doesn't appeal to me too much. Right. Like if I'm going to do work, I want it to be work that yeah. I, I'm really passionate about. And so I, I came across a job listing from Arenco, and they're in battery storage and renewable energy. I had a look at you know what they've been doing. I had a look at some of the people that work for them. So that's your typical LinkedIn stalking, right? And at the end of it all, I was really impressed. Mm -hmm. So I applied for the role as a sort of data science position, helping to straddle uh, the the land between pure data science and software, which is a, a weird and confusing place to be. But uh, they accepted it. Um, and I flew over with my wife uh, early December, straight into their first, uh, like, what well, probably their second really tough lockdown. So I got into London. I uh, got to my apartment here, uh, bought yeah. some plants, and effectively haven't been outside since. So, great times. Damn. Well, the plants look great. If you're watching the YouTube version of this podcast, you can check those out. Looking very healthy. You're obviously it's, getting a lot of time to tend to them. That's right. And it's so nice because in <laughs> Australia, plants are always like brown because, you know, here everything's so green. Grass is green. It's weird. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. Yes, the platform is called Super Data Science. It's the namesake of this very podcast. In the platform, you'll discover all of our 50 plus courses, which together provide over 300 hours of content, with new courses being added on average once per month. All of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off. Sign up today at www.superdatascience.com. Secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. Um, so you mentioned dark energy. I don't necessarily want to spend too much time on your PhD past. There's tons of interesting things there. You were the Australian rep for the Lindau Nobel laureates. You were on the Australian version of the TV show Survivor. You were a contestant on the show. Oh, yes, that, that was good. Uh, so I guess in order, Lindau was great. For those that, that don't know, this this isn't the ceremony where they award the Nobel Prize. But every year, a bunch of Nobel recipients, so people, Nobel laureates that have been awarded the prize, come together with a bunch of students and the whole thing is about interdisciplinary collaboration and trying to get knowledge from one area of science into another area. So I was yeah, really lucky to, to go to there. And I had a great European holiday off the back of that, uh, which was fantastic. Uh, and then in terms of holidays, yeah, midway through my PhD, I got a call from Channel 10. Uh, they they found my profile online and said, we want you to come on to Survivor. And They found like, you? Yeah, I, I don't know how, uh, but they reached out, thought it was spam initially. Ah. And, but I decided I was getting close to burning out. Right? You know, <laughs> when you're working too many hours a week and things just aren't going well, I, I, was, I was losing my mind at one particular point. I was trying to fit a really nasty hierarchical model that kept fitting with like really severe bias. It was driving me insane. And they were like, hey, you want to have no technology for a couple of months? And I was like, yes, please get me out of here. And the theme, <laughs> you know, it's, it's great. But the theme for that season was champions versus contenders. And somehow I was put on the champions tribe. I was effectively the token yeah. nerd in a group of sports legends and war heroes. And it was extremely awkward. We got in there the first night and we what all did this. You, what were you champion of? Academia. I was Astrophysics an academic. Champion? Yeah, apparently I just had a big enough brain. And they right. were like, yeah, this, this will do. Make a fool out of yourself on TV. And I was like, yeah, all right. Because, you know, not actually that smart. And uh, yeah, the rest is, is immortalized <laughs> in various videos that uh, people find every now and then and send to me and say, is that you? And I'm like, yeah. But it was good. Uh, the first night, we had this big kumbaya yeah. moment, sitting around the, the, the fire where yeah. we introduced each other. And, you know, Lydia Lassala introduces herself, and she's a gold-winning Winter Olympian. Uh, you know, various people introduce themselves. Matt Rogers, like footy legend. Uh, the person before me was Damien Tomlinson, who was a special, special forces commando, lost his legs in Afghanistan. After doing that, he said, you know what, that's not going to stop me. He's known for being an actor. Uh, he's a motivational speaker. He's a very good Paralympic snowboarder. I like absolutely crazy dude. They've all introduced themselves. Then it's my turn in the fire. And I, you know, what do you say following on from a war hero like this? He was like, yeah, um, hi everyone. I'm Sam and uh, I study physics. 
it's it's just it's not I impressive. Can build hierarchical models that yeah. have a ton of bias. That's you, right. <laughs> you, you haven't seen hierarchical models that are as biased as the ones that I built. It's my special away. skill for sure. <laughs> But uh, yeah, effectively, they all got on really well. They're all sporting legends or like super fit. And I'm the, the thin, weedy guy uh, just like trying to keep up. I did pretty good. I, I am so far, I was undefeated. Did you? How did you run challenges? Right. Wow. The so only one win? there. I guess you didn't win because that probably would have already come up. So yeah. how did you get voted off the island? You get voted off the island, right? Yeah, I, I got voted off. I, I made a very simple mistake of trusting someone, which if you've seen Survivor, oh, you should not do no. that. So uh, there, there was one contestant out there <laughs> and I went up to her and I was like, look, I've heard that your name's going to be out there. So you might want to talk to X and Y, smooth things over. And so, you know, I'm not supposed to have told her anything because I – like th these are sensitive details that I've revealed to her. She's under an NDA. She just doesn't realize it. So she goes up to the other people. She's like, hey, Sam just said that my name was out there. I, like under the bus I went and like, oh, Sam's leaking information. Let's get rid of him. And I was like, why would you tell him? If I, if I tell you this, just keep it to yourself. Like, come on. Anyway, no regrets. I mean, obviously I didn't win, so regrets, but no regrets. <laughs> Um, well, I guess, you know, there's a lot of competitors. The odds of winning are, I suppose, slim anyway. But let's go back to your PhD. When you came back from Survivor, I'm sure you had everything figured out for that hierarchical model. So you mentioned that you were working on dark energy. What is dark energy? How does that relate to dark matter? All right. So you got a spare couple of hours. Let's do this. Uh, so <laughs> the, first, the first thing is dark energy and dark matter, completely separate, right? They... We oh, really should have picked no. better names for it because I, I often give a talk about yeah. dark energy and then someone says, so dark matter. I'm like, no, no, we're not talking about that. But dark energy, <laughs> super simply, is uh, whatever it is that is causing the phenomenon that the universe is expanding, but more than that, that expansion is accelerating. So it's effectively some sort of right. weird anti-gravity force pushing everything in the universe apart from each other and we really don't know what it is. Einstein right. made a guess. Currently, it looks like he might be right. Like, that's the best guess so far, which is a bit frustrating because, you know, Einstein, you know, hasn't he guessed <laughs> correctly enough? Like, can't he leave something for the rest of us right. to try and figure out? He's not even alive, but he's still coming in like, oh, yeah, I guess I guess he was right. Yeah, he wrote this doodle. Yeah, that's right as well. It's just disheartening, you know? <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, he's a tough person to compare yourself to, I guess. I think I think it's an, he had an unfair advantage that he didn't have computers at the internet, which is a huge advantage because now we just get distracted all day by LinkedIn and making podcasts. Imagine if all you had to do all day was make doodles. You'd have such great ideas, Sam. Oh, I mean, I want to say yes, but... After coming back from Survivor, where I had months without any internet, I did have ideas. I wrote them all down. Uh, let's just say that they weren't the best ideas, and uh, none of them really took off into a business to rival Amazon or Google. So potentially, I'm just, yeah. Maybe, maybe decades after your death, it will finally. Someone will find that doodle and... Um, displace Apple as the most valuable company in the world in 2050. 
well, hopefully you're not dead by 2050. Yeah, I was uh, like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just picked a number that sounded really far away. Uh, Obviously, the idea was good enough that they've, they've killed me for it, taken it. And you know what? Respect <laughs> to them. If, if it's worth that much, just let me know. I'll give it to you. Ah. All right. So, so dark energy but you were applying machine learning to study dark energy, other astrophysics concepts. Uh, and yeah. also you have a strong computing background. So you have an undergrad in computer science, which must be quite valuable in the machine learning space. And maybe even more so in academia, as you alluded to with the COVID situation, where you had a bunch of academics saying, hey, we've never actually had to put something in production. And oh, yes. You have. <laughs> can you help us? So, so tell me about these things. If you can weave all of these ideas together. Your software engineering background, your formal education in that, as well as experience working in finance as a software developer, how you were able to use that to create machine learning models in the astrophysics space. Go. All right. Okay. Okay. No pressure. A lot of topics, small amount of time. We can do this. So <laughs> the big issue that we have in academia is that, as, as you said, uh, most academics don't have any formal coding background. And that means that... They might be great if you ask them to write a MATLAB script because they learned that in undergrad or potentially the more skilled ones can write a Jupyter notebook and that's great. But the big issue with astrophysics is that the universe is really, really big. And unfortunately, it's not exactly like you can download the universe into your notebook. So when we have things like the dark energy... How big is it? Isn't it like one of the biggest like things you can big. think of or... How big is it relative to like um, like an ocean? Is it bigger than an ocean? Twice as big. Really big. Twice as big. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Okay. All right. Keep going. Yeah. Okay. Oh, wait, where was I? So, right. Universe is uh, big. So much data from yeah, the universe yeah, yeah. being uh, twice the size of an ocean. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> we have our telescopes and... If the weather is nice, they go and observe the night sky. They look at various patches, they take pictures, or they get spectra. And at the end of it, you have terabytes or petabytes of information. And somehow you have to try and extract value from that. So one of the things that I was right. looking at was supernova, so exploding stars. Unfortunately, uh, you know, we only mm. want a very specific sort of supernova. They're called type 1A supernova. And that's because they all pretty much look the same. Right? We need some sort of event that is like repeatable or at least standardizable so that we can do science on it. If they were completely random, right. how do you extract properties from them? You can't. But unfortunately, in this I like that it's supernova 1A. That's yeah, yeah. Relatively we we don't want the 1Bs or the 1Cs or the 1BCs or the type 2s. <laughs> Those are crap. Actually, that's not true. People are trying to use type 2s. It's just much more difficult. Anyway, type 1As, that's what I wanted. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So how do you identify a supernova right. going off in a galaxy? Well, it's a it's a point on the sky that gets a bit brighter and then it fades away. Great. That that's it. Unfortunately, there's a lot of things in this big old universe of ours that change brightness. So there are some stars that pulsate. Right? You have quasars. So the the black holes in centers of very young galaxies accrete matter. They eat matter, accretion disk. They get bright. So they fade. They dim. They grow, etc. There's a whole bunch of things. And we want to try and take all of them and then with some intelligent algorithm, throw out everything that isn't a 1A. And that's where a lot of the machine learning comes in. So that's mm -hmm. for the supernova side of it. There are other things that, that we were looking at within the dark energy survey. 
So if anyone wants to see some cool pictures of something called an Einstein cross, Google it. But what that is, is strong lensing. I'm not gonna explain that, we don't have the time, but effectively there's a way that gravity is manipulating an object such that it has a very peculiar shape. We don't have enough human eyes on the planet to scan through the images we take. So again, you have to write machine learning algorithms that take the images and try to identify these specific objects. So we use the machine learning as, I guess, one part in a much larger model such that the machine learning sort of goes in near the start and then we apply various statistical techniques or hierarchical models, if you get lucky, or ABC, so approximate Bayesian computation, to try and figure out exactly the properties of the universe that would give rise to the events that we've seen. That's as simple, but not actually that simple wow, as I can make sounds, sounds really interesting. I assume that you're the person who discovered those Einstein crosses. I'm curious as to why you named it that, but. Um, <laughs> or, um, you know, I, uh, I just felt like so it was the right thing to do. Does, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, so what kinds, I mean, I, we don't need to necessarily go into a huge amount of detail on this, but when you're building these kinds of tools, when you're doing machine learning on that terabyte scale as an academic, I'm suspecting you're not using MATLAB scripts or working <laughs> in a Jupyter notebook. What kinds of, what kinds of software tools do you use? Uh, it's interesting. Is it like cloud computing? Do you have no. giant Yes, yeah, so this is the main difference between industry and academia, which is, and it, this is definitely changing. Academia is sort of catching up to industry. So a lot of our processing works on Midway, which is a supercomputer in Chicago, or uh, NERSC. So that's one of the, the U.S. government's like really big supercomputers based at LBL. So it's not cloud computing, but it is distributed computing. So we would get allocated a certain number of like million CPU hours. And then it's similar to if people have used Spark or Dask, but you know, other ways of breaking up a very large data set into chunks, and then you process each chunk individually. That's effectively how it works. And the, the goal for all of this is that once you've done the analysis, once you've processed this data, the outputs should hopefully be able to be run in that sort of cosmological fit on your laptop. So after you've identified what's a 1A and what isn't, the collection of 1A you have at the end is only like a thousand objects in size. That's a very small data frame. Uh -huh. And then you can play around with that really quickly on your laptop. If you ever want to reanalyze what is a 1A or what isn't, slightly bigger issue. Interesting. It's so interesting that after that big processing, you get just this little data frame. So you'd have, you'd have like a pandas data frame on your laptop with a thousand rows so you've got in top row is uh, supernova 1A1. The next row is supernova 1A2. Pretty uh, much. Through to supernova 1A1000. And um, what are the columns of data? Uh, so this, this is going to get into the weeds a little bit. I'll keep this one brief. But right. there are various ways that people have come up with over the years to try and parameterize supernova. So some of them uh, use you know, decomposition, so things similar to PCA. Um, some of them, well, most of them actually try and add a little bit of physics into that so that you have like a physically motivated decomposition. So for the supernova, you might simply have, you know, what redshift it was at, how bright it is, what color it was, and how long it went on for. And those four parameters describe about 95% of the variation within the supernova population. The, the only trick is knowing oh, how to get cool. those four. 
So there's various research going on. So there's a group at LBL that I was going to join that's using autoencoders to try and go from our time series photometry data. So how bright was it at this date? And effectively, for those that aren't familiar, an autoencoder, you try and predict the input, but your neural network architecture looks like uh, two funnels stuck together. So in the middle of it, there's only a few neurons, but if you train it and it works properly, mm-hmm. once you get to those few neurons, you can inspect them and you've effectively done some sort of you know dimensional reduction in a very non-linear way. So there's ways of doing it like that. There's like isomapping where you have manifold surfaces. There's PCA related ones. There's a whole bunch of different things. We sort of try them all and hope that one of them is good enough. Oh man, that is cool. All right. So now I'm going to have what's probably a really dumb question, but so you find these attributes that are really important about supernovae, then what do you do with them? What insights can you glean? So fundamentally, if you have a universe that has a certain amount of dark energy that acts in a certain way and a certain amount of dark matter that acts in a slightly different way, and you put those together, you have a deterministic I told you they were related. Well, they're different. <laughs> they're ingredients that go into the pie. <laughs> yeah. So there's a deterministic relationship that says, if you have your universe configured like this, and you're at you know this redshift, redshift is just a measure of distance, how far away that supernova or galaxy is, then it should be this bright. So it's you can think of it like you know if we if we compress this down you effectively get a line plot where we have our data is redshift and brightness and if you have the universe a certain way you get a line and you just fit the line. Obviously, there's a few more dimensions, a bit more subtlety, but that's what it boils down to. I understand perfectly. That sounds really interesting. So now I've got another even dumber question. So obviously, knowing about dark energy and how the universe is expanding or why it's expanding. It's interesting because it's interesting in and of itself. I agree 100%. Are there also potentially applications that we know about as a result of understanding this process better? For example, not that we know about right now. I'm travel. Yeah, you'd, you'd hope so, but not really. Um, <laughs> so I guess I've heard this question a lot, especially when I was in Astro. <laughs> As to like, what's the benefit of doing it? Apart from the whole like knowledge for knowledge sake, but a lot of the the techniques that we develop for Astro get used in other places. So a big one is genetics. So we both have like very high dimensional surfaces that we have to fit or optimize. And so techniques that we develop get used. And we're like, we steal their techniques as well. But effectively, the thing with Astro is that we're not launching money or resources into space. We're paying you know, like people to solve hard problems. And this this harkens back to the right. Lindau meeting as well, which is that like there are a lot of similarity between the hard problems in one field and another. So a lot of the value from Astro comes from that transfer of knowledge. Sometimes you get benefits out of it, like digital cameras. Like we got that one for free. Wi-Fi, almost like that's a bit related to uh, to Astro, the whole sort of wavelengths and everything. So sometimes there's really cool technology that comes out. Most of it's algorithms. Wow, man. That is cool. I'm really glad I asked that question that I thought was going to be really dumb, but I learned a lot from the answer. Okay, so that was your PhD, and it's now been uh, about a year since you wrapped up working on it. It's been over six months since you were formally awarded the PhD. Congratulations, Dr. Hinton. And now you find yourself in London working at the Arenco Group. 
You mentioned that they work on battery storage and renewable energy. That does sound to me personally, people who have been listening to the podcast, I often say that using data science for some kind of social benefit interests me personally. And so it will not surprise um, listeners that this is something that interests me. And in fact, on the preceding episode, so on episode 459 that will air before your episode airs, Sam, the one that people are listening to right now, weird time travel stuff happening right now in the podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, So on the episode released a week ago from the time that you're listening to this, if you're listening to this relatively after the episode was released, which may very well not be the case. Anyway, episode 459 is all about using machine learning to combat climate change. So it sounds like this is on theme that Arenko Group is in that space. Um, battery storage and renewable energy. We didn't talk about battery storage too much in episode 459. Um, So I'd love to learn more about that. How can machine learning make a difference in that space? Yeah, okay. So a whole bunch of topics in here, but uh, yes, I'm totally in your camp too, where I wanted to use data science on my career to do something that I felt was improving the planet a little bit. And that was one of the big reasons I shifted out of Astro into something like a company like Arenco. So the thing is, here in the UK, there's quite a bit of solar, especially during the summer months, because it's just bright all the time, really weird. But there's also a buttload of wind. There's more wind being generated here than I think anywhere else. Unfortunately, the wind blows, but sometimes it doesn't. And so there's this big intermittency problem where you can't exactly turn off the gas in the coal plants because if the wind stops, uh, you know, they can't just turn on instantly. So if, if the energy storage, or sorry, if the energy system operator thinks that there's not going to be enough energy in five hours from now, it can't wait until five hours and then check. It has to, hours beforehand, tell fossil fuel plants like coal stations and gas stations, hey, I think I might need you in three hours, so start turning on. And once they turn on, they also just can't turn off. So once you pay for a fossil fuel plant to produce energy, you can't say no. It's going to produce that energy and you have to buy it. So the idea with battery storage is if we can undercut the fossil fuel plants, so we, we effectively buy energy overnight. So when the wind's blowing and no one has their lights on and like, you know energy demand is low, energy is cheap. Sometimes it's actually negative pricing. So they, they can pay us money to take the energy. Wow. And that's great because we then put it in these big batteries. You wait for something like the 6 p.m. peak when everyone's getting off work and suddenly the power demand skyrockets. And instead of having to have the gas turbine spin up at like 2 p.m., you just say, look, we've got it. Like we already like we're, we're selling the energy here at 6 p.m. that we bought at 2 a.m. And so the the idea is if we can continue to increase the volume of batteries in the market, we can, you know, essentially smooth out that supply and demand curve. So it's similar if anyone's, you know, if any electrical engineers are listening, we're just adding more and more capacitors to the system to try and iron out any wrinkles. And hopefully that means we can turn off the coal plants permanently. And then after that, we can turn off the gas plants as well. Wow. And I realized. So Orenco Group actually owns. Yeah, go ahead. 
So um, I, I realize I haven't talked about the machine learning part of it yet. Uh, the machine learning comes yeah, in. Yeah, I was going to get there. Don't worry. Yeah, I was yeah, going to yeah. remind you. But, but before we get there, so the Orenco Group actually owns these batteries. No. So they used to. They, oh. they owned the block switch battery, which was a sort of a giant proof of concept showing that you can have this like warehouse-sized battery and it can be really efficient. Uh, but they've pivoted into a software company. So uh, Renko sold off the battery, used that to essentially expand their data science and software team. And so the idea is there are many, many companies that are investing and building their own battery solutions, but there's a lot that goes in. So you don't just have a battery and you don't just like connect it via a wire to the grid. There's a whole bunch of stuff you have to do because there are energy markets. You need to say that in this market at this time, I'm buying this amount of power at this price. And you have to try and figure out what markets to buy in, what markets to sell in. How do you do that? How do you optimize your asset so that you're actually making money for yourself and undercutting everyone else? Because that's how you make the money. You make sure that you just get in and the gas plants don't. Right. Okay, cool. All right. So now I understand about Orenco. Now tell us about the ML applications. So, you know, tell us, we can start with, I guess, machine learning generally and how this is useful with these battery systems. However, then also please expand and tell us about the ML ops that you focus on and maybe even telling us a little bit about what ML ops is. I can definitely do that. So back in the good old days, and this applies to energy, but also I think more intuitively, it applies to finance as well. Imagine you're on the stock market. Back in the good old days, you have a whole team of traders and they read the articles, they monitor the market, and they're the ones that say, ah, this is going to go up. We should buy this now, sell it off later, right? People are expensive, and having a trading team that works 24-7 means you don't have one person. You have multiple people. They might be sick. You have even more people, and they all have to have a lot of experience. These aren't easy markets to predict, whether you're in energy or finance. So traditionally, you have this very large sunken cost that isn't just a one-time cost, it's every day you're paying for a whole team's salary to try and figure out what to do with your assets. So the idea with the ML learning side is instead of you know giving the data to a trader, and to be fair, we, we still do have a trader, Joe, he's a lovely guy, and we use him to get feedback as to how well <laughs> we're doing. But instead of giving the data to them, you give right. it to the computer, and the computer says, all right, so I think... Uh, from the data you've given me now, that in four hours, these five markets will be at these price points with this confidence. And you can use that information to try and determine via a different algorithm whether you should buy or sell at that given price point or wait a bit later for a different expected price. So they already have quite a few solutions in here. So Renko is sort of at leading the pack right now. And they're broken into multiple markets and they're doing very fancy things like trading on two markets in one again both at the same time. That allows you to do very nifty things that I'm probably not allowed to talk about those details, but it's very exciting. However, one of the big things that you have in many companies is that you have a whole bunch of like great ideas or things that you want to do. So in our case, there, there are new markets. So maybe we want to try and expand overseas. Like Australia is a great place to put solar and batteries because we get a lot of sun and you know there's enough public interest for them, even if the political interest is lagging a bit behind. 
So let's say we wanted to go into Australia. You now have a whole bunch of problems, which is how do you predict the Australian specific market? Because these markets aren't the same. You need to have bespoke solutions for bespoke markets. So if someone comes up and says, oh, I've done some exploratory analysis, I have this great Jupyter notebook that seems to give great predictions. The, the question is, cool, um, and are you going to put that into our production system? So how do you go from a Jupyter notebook with a proof of concept into something that needs to run with 100% uptime up in the cloud without any supervision or whatsoever? And that's effectively the big part of MLOps. Now, within that, there's a whole bunch of smaller nice. things. So experiment tracking, that's definitely a big one. So the big players in here, people might have seen MLflow or Neptune or ClearML. But the idea here is that you want your machine learning models to be a little bit uh, less haphazard and more accessible. So I want to effectively try and take some of the, the concepts from software engineering and apply them to data science. So if you think about a software project, you, you have it on GitHub or GitLab. You have some version control system. So you always know that at this particular commit, this is exactly what the project looks like. That is normally lacking completely for data science projects. If you have a notebook and you tweak a hyperparameter, 100% and you run it again, well, now you've got a different model, but what happened to the previous model? Well, it's normally gone, right? Unless you saved it out. And then if you saved it out, I hope it's not just like on a file on your computer. So experiment tracking is where <laughs> you have some way of automatically saving these models, putting them into the cloud. So with something like MLflow, which is one of the, the biggest players in here, you can have your, your model, whether it's a scikit-learn model or a PyTorch model or a TensorFlow model, and you can say it's using these parameters and these are the results it got. And here's the model itself. And, and you press a button, well, you write a line of code. And at the end of your notebook, it uploads all of that into the cloud. So now if you ever want to try and recover that model, maybe that turns out it was the best. And you know, wow, I wish I hadn't changed those hyperparameters. You can just open up MLflow and you'll see that at this date, you push this model that lives here with these parameters that performs this well. And so now you have all these models tracked up in the cloud. You don't need to worry that, ah, I had a great idea, but whoops, I changed the notebook. And so experiment tracking is sort of the first big part. And then the even bigger part is how do you take an experiment and turn it into a production model? So the difference there is, you know, with a production model, you want to have it hosted somewhere, some API set up, so that you can say, look, this model, you know, that I made at this time, give me predictions when I give you this input. So the idea is you don't have to have a Jupyter notebook. You can just, uh, you know, make a curl request and down come your predictions. And it needs to be in a way that that server doesn't go down. And also, Another big issue is that machine learning models, the ones that we make, they generally take data, right? You give them X, your data frame or your NumPy array, and they produce Y, a NumPy array. Great. Not very useful, though, if you're a, an end user or a program that's trying to use that API. So you don't want to say, hey, here's X. What's, what's the predicted price? You want to say, hey, as of today, what is the price that you think will happen in an hour, right? And then hopefully your model under the hood 
is able to take that request, turn that into your input array, ask the machine learning model, what do you think is going to happen? And then turn the output from a NumPy array into something that's more well-suited to an application. So the machine learning model has two components now where it's the, the transformations of the data and the data manipulation, and then the machine learning part, and they get stuck together. People are probably familiar with this. Uh, I guess the closest concept that a lot of people know about is you know, scikit-learn pipelines. You can have distinct steps that flow into one another, and it's, it's quite similar to that. But it also, it needs to be productionized. So you need to have it hosted somewhere in a very robust way, and you need the ability to say, hey, I've updated this model update it in production or put it to staging, have it in a testing version. There's all these little concerns that you need to have, but you also don't want to try and <clears throat> slow things down, right? Every hoop that you add to jump through slows down your data scientists. It slows down the speed of their iteration. So effectively, my job is to add totally. those hoops, but try and do it so that the hoops are as invisible as possible. Right. Wow, that was an incredible explanation. I was genuinely riveted throughout that entire bit. I learned a ton, and you masterfully explained MLOps in general, as well as MLOps for this specific, this specific renewable energy application. So there are a million places I could still go with you from here. <laughs> I... Oh probably actually have this podcast episode go on forever. Well, maybe not forever, um, but we could make the episode length twice the size of an ocean, say. Um, That's big. <laughs> it's a pretty big podcast episode. So um, when, when you are working in your day-to-day, -day, what kinds of tools are you using? Do you use MLflow, but do you mostly have to build bespoke tools? What are the kind of what are the ML ops tools that people should be looking at? Right. So I looked at quite a few experiment tracking systems to start with, and eventually we did go with MLflow. Uh, it's got a large community, and that really does help if you run into any issues. However, that being said, MLflow might not be the the way that anyone listening to this would want to go. Experiment tracking is a, a very very busy area of development. Every week, there's a new experiment tracking tool that offers new, exciting features. Uh, because of that, who knows in six months or in one month whether anything will edge it out. For us, MLflow, easy to install, easy to get it working, and it came with a few features that some of the others didn't. So it has registered models, which means that I can say that this particular, like, let's say you do hyperparameter training, you have 100 evaluations, so you have 100 models. I can say the best model of those is now going to be called this name and it's going to be staged. So you put it into dev and it has that sort of versioning of models built in that a lot of others don't. And so we use that so that every, every now and then we have various services that live up in the cloud and it asks MLflow, like what are the latest models that have these states? It takes those and it automatically deploys them into the server so that we can access them via an endpoint. So once we have those models up there, anyone can curl and get predictions. But then we also want to you know, save out those predictions. So like every half an hour, you just say, what do you think now? What do you think now? You put that in a database. And that way, you have a really great way of saying what your historical predictions are. Because you want to make sure, right? Models don't stay good forever. Models have a lifetime, especially in the past two years. 
if you look at things like energy prices, the fact that there was a lockdown and everyone started working from home drastically changed how the energy market looked. So a model that was trained in 2019 does horrifically bad 2020. And 2020 is different from 2021 because of Brexit coming in at the end of the year. So ideally, you want a way that you can continuously, like every week, just train your model again, bump it up, put it somewhere, and then you can compare it to the, you know, your new model against the older model. You want to see, are the models drifting? Are they getting worse? Should we deploy this model in testing? Make it the official model in production. It's a whole bunch of, of little things like that that you have to try and uh, you know, figure out yourself. And for a lot of that, there aren't great like off-the-box solutions because it's so tailored to a specific problem. So we ended up making like those services I'm talking about now are all things that I've written myself. Uh, however, there are though there are systems and frameworks that try to make this a bit easier. So Kubernetes, for example, has Kubeflow. Uh, right. You can plug Selden Core in to do the model serving. That will take your model and put it at an endpoint. Uh, we we don't use that mostly because when I joined a Renko group, they had infrastructure already set up and it wasn't Kubernetes. And I was like, well, I can work with the existing infrastructure and keep the ops burden on the software engineers low. Or I can try and request a brand new thing, unlikely to get approved because of the extra cost. Right, right, right. Wonderful explanation. So if listeners are listening, which I guess is what listeners do, hopefully you're listening, listener. Um, So listener, if you're listening, you might have wondered, how could I be better at MLOps myself? And you might be a, a manager who's interested in having this in your organization as a part of your data pipelines, or you might be a data scientist or a software engineer, and you think, wow, I definitely need to have this kind of versioning that I'm used to with Git, uh, you know, with my version control with my software, I need to have that same kind of version control with my models. So is there a place that you can recommend that people go to to learn about MLOps, or do you pretty, you pretty much just have to start tackling your specific problem and just kind of give it a go? So when I faced this, the same question uh, a little while ago now, uh, the place that I went to that was actually very handy was a Slack community. It's uh, the mlops.community. And uh, it's they're very open, very helpful. You can join there, introduce yourself. There's a bunch of channels uh, where you can ask questions. There's a channel dedicated to learning resources um, or, you know, requesting specific help with specific problems. So I remember during the start, I was in there and I was like, look, I'm looking at these five tools. Has anyone got direct experience with at least one of them? I got a bunch of responses. It allowed me to filter this list of like a dozen potential avenues for investigation down to around three. And then I rolled out three different prototypes, demoed those to the team. And from that, we we picked one final one that we were going to run with. So that's Definitely been the the most useful place for me. I'm sure there's probably a couple of LinkedIn groups as well. I just don't use LinkedIn that much. Uh, So I always have Slack open because my work uses it. And it's just simply another team that I'm part of. And yeah, it's been great. Nice. So maybe not the biggest LinkedIn user, but you did mention uh, open and the ideas of open source and community. So I know that that's something that's very important to you in general. We were talking a little bit of a little bit before the program started about how somebody, how anybody, how any listener (laughs) could go from some software that they've written that they think 
the public might be interested in and how they can tidy that up and make it interesting or valuable to somebody in the open source community. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I have a few open source packages, uh, mostly related to astrophysics. Uh, so not too useful for the vast majority of people listening, I suppose. Uh, but you know, putting those out with the software engineering background, I know that there were a lot of people in Astro that had these really nifty algorithms, really cool ideas, and they were just in some random Python file or notebook. And, and there was no idea, like, how do I put this on GitHub? Or they, you know, they didn't want to put it on GitHub because they were embarrassed because the code wasn't up to standard. It didn't look like NumPy's source code, so it therefore must be absolutely terrible. So I actually, I did a workshop on this back in Australia in a few cities that I, I, I flew between about how to sort of turn your code. You, you taught the workshop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a nice little national. You created workshop. the workshop. Yeah. yeah, it was a good, like, 100 slides. It took, it was a whole day. Um, there's no YouTube videos of it. Uh, sorry, people listening. There's a, a repository somewhere that I don't recommend you try and find. But uh, places like GitHub, actually, <laughs> have have their own, like, recommendations and systems. So you can you can just Google up, you know, open source GitHub recommendations, and they'll, they'll show you, like, here are templates for issues, templates for uh, pull requests. Uh, there's GitHub discussions now, a way that you can add that to a repository you've made so that people can ask questions that aren't issues. But a lot of it uh, is very accessible. Like, I'm not going to link a specific resource. You, you can Google that and find it out. But I guess the thing that I would say is I would encourage people to do it. Because in the act of trying to turn your idea or your script into an open source project, you will learn a lot. So you'll learn a lot about Git. You'll learn about CICD because you probably want to hook up something that does testing. Whenever you, you push to a branch, it does testing or it builds images. You'll learn how to write those tests. You'll learn how to refactor your code. You'll learn how to write documentation. You'll learn how to plug Sphinx in. So Sphinx is the, the program that is used by everyone you know and love, Sci scikit-learn, scipy, numpy, that turns their doc string into the web pages that I'm sure we all have too many tabs open. So it's, just a, it's something you can throw into your pipeline right. so that whenever you change the code, the documentation automatically updates. You can have examples that create plots that update. And all of these things that you learn will help you be a better, not just coder, but a software engineer. So it teaches you the principles as to why you want to do things, not just that you should be doing things in a certain way. Nicely said. I, you're, you're appreciating now. I, you've made me the choir. <laughs> so I'll I, be checking something that has never occurred to me. I have, <laughs> yeah, I have various open source projects of mine and I'm kind of just doing my own thing. And now that you're talking about all this, I feel like, I don't know what I was thinking and that I should definitely be trying to follow some standards and making these projects a lot more valuable to everyone. So brilliant. Thank you for that guidance. I, as I mentioned, when I did my last segue between topics, I really do feel like we could go on talking about a million things forever, but we're going to start winding down the episode. And at the end of any episode, we ask, the guest if they have a particular book recommendation. And in your case, I want to do something else first, which is for you to tell us about the fiction book that you are currently writing. All right. Well, no idea when or if it shall ever see the light of day. 
But I, I am a, a voracious reader. I got into fantasy very early. Thank you, Harry Potter. And from then, <laughs> I, I have read, I don't know how many hundreds of books. But it's, it's one thing that I, I told myself I would start doing, especially during lockdown when there's essentially nothing else to do, because I, I was getting burnt out by the, the constant uh, need or, or pressure from myself and I feel like from the, the, the expectations from the wider community that a data scientist shouldn't just have a full-time job. They should be producing content or projects or portfolio pieces off to the side. And for me, I was like, you know, enough is enough. I, I spend many, many hours a week in my professional life doing data science. So let's try and not do that when I have some time off because otherwise I'm going to go insane. So I effectively took some of the books that were my favorite, I did a whole lit review, a process in a very scientific way. And I said, you know, what do I like? What do I not like? Sort of took the things that I did, starting to mash them together, you know, create some characters. It's a, a nice world building thing that even if, you know, a book never gets published, maybe I can run a game of Dungeons and Dragons in this setting or something <laughs> like that. But it's, it's just a really nice way of trying to, you know, change tact. When, when you stop work, it's something that I can use to try and clear out all the code that's buzzing around in my head that I haven't yet written down so that I can actually relax and try and enjoy the evening or the weekend, you know, when you get some of those. Are you writing the book in a code editor or? <laughs> yes. Tell me how to yeah, no, I'm, well, I'm using VS Code and it has a, a plugin called Foam. I knew uh, it. All, you know, all the Markdown plugins, uh, so they're all linked to each other. It's a nice, I have my little tree diagram, which has like places and systems and characters and plot points. And then, you know, chapter one, it's, it's great. Anyone that doesn't use Git when they're coding is just asking to lose a manuscript. Yeah, I, so my book, Deep Learning <laughs> Illustrated, which is not fiction. It's beautiful. <laughs> I hope it is I've fiction. seen those illustrations. Uh, they're so nice. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, that's Agley Batson. She's a genius. So she is, she's been a friend of mine. She is now the wife of someone who's been a friend of mine for 12, 13, 14 years, a very long time. And she is brilliant. It is mind blowing to me how I could, at that time that we were creating the book, she was living in Paris and I was in New York. And after I drafted most of the book, we would then get on phone calls. And I would describe those illustrations over the phone. And she would nail it almost spot on the first time. And I'd be blown away. She'd send me a draft of an illustration. And I was like, how did you take that? Like, this is exactly what I had in my mind. I can't believe that you were able to create it. And she doesn't come from a computing or data science background in any way. So uh, I don't know, completely blew my Is mind. Is this your way of saying that you're a good communicator, John? Because <laughs> I hear your message. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think that if anything, the thing you should be taking away is despite poor communication, like it's an even bigger statement as to her capacity to, um, to I think, think that that's definitely the better way to think about it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Anyway, uh, yeah, so we did that book um in latex um and we did all of the versioning in github and i definitely do recommend it, particularly if you're I, I guess it doesn't even matter whether you're collaborating with people or not on a book having proper versioning is great and 
there's all kinds of benefits to doing it in code, like being able to write comments. Um, I don't know. I think it's, it's VS Code. There's 10,000 extensions that you can plug in. There's even extensions that help you with the writing. I, I haven't used any of them, but I've, I've seen them talked about in various forums, you know, things that look at your sentence length. You know, are you varying sentence length? Are you using passive tone? Very useful things because, you know, people that make VS Code and make the plugins are smart cookies and they want to make their lives easier and you can steal their hard work to make your life easier. And isn't that what life's all about? That's what computing is all about for sure. So is it too early for you to tell us a little bit about the plot or anything about the book? Too soon? Too soon? Yeah, de definitely too soon. I, I have it all in a first pass, but <laughs> I've told myself because I, I have this thing where I, I feel bad trashing a section, right? If, if something doesn't feel right, you're like, oh, let's just tear right. this out. It's like, it's like you put all this effort in, you're a bit invested into it, but you know it's probably for the best to rip this Band-Aid off. And I don't want to add any more burden to myself by, by giving away anything because then sure. that Band-Aid sticks even harder to my I skin. Understand. <laughs> I, That's so, fair enough. But I won't be surprised if that has something to do with um, an old-time medieval physics expert stuck on a secluded island with um, backstabbing people you can't trust. You're actually pretty close. So <laughs> looks like I'm going to have to change the whole plot again. <laughs> <laughs> um all right and so do you actually have a book recommendation for us uh since we can't read your book yet uh i mean the book that i'm most looking forward to is uh will white's cradle series so book nine is coming out in like two weeks and uh i'm very excited for it the first three books are free right now on amazon i believe so if anyone that wants to check it out you don't need to pay anything it's just a fun uh, fantasy series that uh, I, I greatly enjoy. It's it's super easy to read. I don't have to worry about keeping track of like ten thousand characters. It's not Game of Thrones, uh, so I really enjoy it, and I'm I'm super keen for it to come out. Awesome, yeah. I one of my bugbears in a book is having to keep track of all the characters. The name pops up, and you're like, who? Have you I ever uh, no, I uh, didn't even quite catch the word sorry. you said. Malazan. So Stephen Erickson wrote like a series of novels called Malazan, Book of the Fallen. I've read them all, but it is by far the most complex and like densest set of books I've ever read. They're great, but it's recommended that you go into reading them with like a reading guide. There's no exposition You just get dumped in the middle of this massive plot. You don't know who anyone is, and the author's like, well you'll figure it out eventually. And it takes a couple of books, but you get there and it's <laughs> wonderful. But if anyone wants a challenge with like a long burn, but good payoff, give them a shot. Wow, there you go. I don't know. Catch 22 for me was a book like that. And I did not enjoy the experience and I didn't feel like it ever got to a really big point. And I think that was kind of the point of the book. Anyway, I don't want to ruin it for people. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Sam, for being on the show a third time. I think we'll need to have you on for a fourth episode very soon because I have a hundred questions that stemmed from the topics that we did talk about today. I'm sure listeners would enjoy that. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me, John. Hopefully we'll be chatting soon. What'd I tell you? Sam is brilliant. 
In today's episode, we covered how terabyte scale machine learning is used to study dark energy and supernovas, giving us some understanding of how the universe is expanding at an accelerating pace. The intermittency problem of renewable energy sources like solar and wind, and how it can be overcome by battery storage and clever machine learning deployed on the energy markets. And we focused a fair bit on machine learning operations, including its value for tracking model weights and data over time, as well as allowing more reliable model uptime in production. We talked about Sam's favorite tools for machine learning ops today, and his recommended resources for getting started with MLOps yourself. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, and the URLs for Sam's LinkedIn profile at superdatascience.com 461. That's superdatascience.com 461. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd of course greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on YouTube, where we have a high fidelity, smiley face filled video version of this episode. I also encourage you to follow or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Twitter, where my Twitter handle is at John Learns. To let me know your thoughts on this episode, I'd love to respond to your comments or questions in public and get a conversation going. You're also welcome to add me on LinkedIn, but it might be a good idea to mention you were listening to the Super Data Science Podcast so that I know you're not a random salesperson. Since this podcast is free, if you'd like a hugely helpful way to show your support for my work, then I'd be very grateful indeed if you made your way to the Data Community Content Creator Awards nomination form, the links in the show notes. Of course, we'd hope you could nominate this Super Data Science podcast for category seven, the podcast or talk show category. I'd also love my name, John Crone, nominated for category eight, the textbook category for my book, Deep Learning Illustrated. And finally, I'd also love my name, again, John Crone, nominated for category two, the machine learning and AI YouTube category for my YouTube channel, which contains tons of free videos on deep learning, linear algebra applications, and machine learning libraries. Finally, a reminder that starting with episode 465 in two weeks time, we will begin releasing guest episodes on Tuesday mornings, New York time. Historically, we've released Wednesday evenings, but by releasing 36 hours earlier, we'll be giving you two more morning commutes in your week to enjoy the episode. I can't imagine any downsides to the change, but I didn't want you to be caught off guard when it happens. All right, thanks to Ivana, Jaime, Mario, and JP on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another great episode today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.